welcome everybody back to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Um, I'm here with Chris Ellis and Brad Garrett. Um, we are going to be talking prepping and bunkers today. So let's just start by having you guys introduce yourselves, um, give people a little background um, on your your respective you know research and and uh, history with prepping, um, Chris and and bunkers, Brad, and then we'll we'll go from there. Chris, you can go first. Yeah, sure. So my youngest memory as a child uh, was the 1980 Mount St. Helens volcano explosion. And I was living in Washington State at the time. And the only thing I remember is that when we went outside to play, there was a little bit of dust on the ground. And we had to wear masks. Um, but that was a uh, disaster was like literally the first thing that I remember as a, as a young child. I also remember going out camping as a kid, playing out in the great outdoors, being at my grandfather's small scale farm, picking corn off the stalks or apples off the trees. I remember getting chased around by the pasture, uh, by the farm animals, especially the geese. Uh, Mr. Peabody was one of the geese that would uh, chase me and my friend around uh, there. And then I also remember my father talking about uh, the end of times, the rapture of Jesus and things along those lines. So very several different uh, inputs into my life as far as disaster was concerned. A mixture of natural disaster, environmentalism, small scale farming, and then spiritual overtones. Professionally, I joined the army uh, after right out of college, went to ROTC and prepared for war and counterinsurgency for the last 23 years. I've had five deployments. I've seen conflict on a multiple scale basis. I went to PhD, I did my PhD at Cornell University a couple of years ago, uh, and then came here to Hawaii. And here in Hawaii, I run a disaster cell for the United States military's India Pacific Command. We cover about 54% of the globe, about 60% of the world's population, and we live in the ring of fire. So right now I've got the Eastern flank of Russia, it's currently a war with Ukraine. I've got all of North Korea and their 12 weapons tests just this year. And I've got China and Taiwan. So pretty boring. Not much to think about. I'm usually home every day around one. That's my introduction. Brad? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I we couldn't have had different uh, uh, lives growing up. I, um, uh, I grew up on the outskirts of Los Angeles. And it was uh, uh, during the 90s when sort of gangs were getting pushed out of LA through gentrification. <clears throat> um, and where I grew up in the Inland Empire was incredibly dangerous. There's a lot of gang warfare. I got beat up a lot. Um, <laughs> it was it was an interesting interesting experience. But I um I escaped. I wanted to get out of there, and so um, I went off to do uh, my master's degree, which was actually in, in maritime archaeology in Australia. Um, and I ended up uh, through the course of that master's degree, becoming more interested in ethnographic research methods, you know, going and hanging out with people, talking to people, trying to understand the world through their eyes, because very often what, what you find in archaeology is, is this very top-down approach where the expert is telling people why things should be important to them. And so I kind of wanted to flip that over. And, uh, I ended up doing a PhD in social and cultural geography at Royal Holloway, University of London, and then a postdoc at Oxford, uh, second postdoc at University of Sydney, and I'm now at University College Dublin in Ireland. So um, uh, I've, I've hopped around a lot, including a couple of years in Hawaii, very close to where Chris is now. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, those those ethnographic research techniques that I've been developing over time, um, <clears throat> I first applied working with urban explorers that were sneaking into off-limits areas and cities, <clears throat> and a lot of those areas that they were sneaking into were bunkers. Um, so I became fascinated with bunkers as architectural spaces and um, uh, started developing this new research project that was working with uh, doomsday preppers who were 
building bunkers, preparing for emergency situations. And uh, that is what I spent the last, the, the last five years working on. So I've, I've lived all over the world with, um, uh, in doomsday prepper communities, um, trying to understand what their motivations are and, and, you know, flipping, uh, the flipping the script on kind of the idea that these people are paranoid, they're delusional, you know, they're fringe, they're kooky. Um, you know, that's when you spend time with people in those communities, you realize there's a, there's a lot more depth there. And that's what I was, was trying to, trying to discover through my research. Nice. And yeah, and I, we were talking before we, we, um, officially started the podcast that, um, you know, I think for a lot of people just saying like prepping or this guy's got a bunker is like supposedly a red flag for them to be like a tinfoil hat person. Um, and it's increasingly something people are serious about, um, you know, or seriously thinking about different potential disaster scenarios and what they might do. Um, you know, it's, I think people still get ridiculed for even thinking like, what would, there was a, there was a tweet that kind of went mini viral among one of the people who um, is in our little doomer optimism circle about like what one must do to survive nuclear war. And people were dunking on it left and right. Like, oh, that's like, oh, you just have to use good vibes to, to, to survive nuclear war or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think the tension for doomer optimism is kind of, um, you know, there, there's a lot we can't control. There's a lot outside of our um, ability to, yeah, to control basically. And, and so what do we do? Like, what, how, do we, how do we like look with clear eyes about what we're heading toward in the future and what, what to do about it? So um, I'll go back to Chris first and have you summarize a bit your findings from your, your PhD research um, and then Brad, and then maybe we can dig in a little deeper because your, your, your research seems to overlap quite a bit. Chris, I think you, yours was more quantitative in nature um, and Brad, yours was qualitative. Um, my research was qualitative on um, subsistence food producers in Chicago and a lot of people who did subsistence food production, like you know large scale pr food production out of the home um, we're doing it for preparedness reasons too. So there's a lot of overlap here, but let, let's hear you guys talk about what you found in your, in your work. Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, uh, I do have to say that I am a member of the Department of Defense and the U.S. Army, but none of my comments are officially sanctioned in my opinions alone. I have to give that blurb out for, for legal reasons. But as far as what I look at, it's just like you said, a lot of the research I've seen out there is, is very broad based. Uh, there's certain individuals, I don't want to call them fake academics, but individuals that look at like film and history and they take doomsday preppers as the example of individuals and then, you know, dunk on them pretty, pretty extensively. Uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to not focus on the dependent variable. I wanted to look at a wide swath of individuals of which some were preppers, doomsday preppers, whatever, uh, survivalists, whatever word you want to use. And so you have to have very unbiased data. So the data that I pulled was from FEMA, United States FEMA, and I looked at their national household survey. And for the first time ever, just a couple of years ago, they released their data open source. And so I took the 2018 and 2017 data set, primarily 2018 data set, and did very quantitative analysis on that. And my question was, are these people utterly fringe or are they more of a crosscut of America? And what I found is that there are some deviations uh, from the norm. For example, preppers are more likely to be uh, are more likely to be male, for example, but they're not radically different from uh, overall. My current research right now is actually taking 2017 through 2020 data, 
so I can have a 20,000 person data set across, a, across America, which gets rid of some of the, the, the noise and the statistics. And I'm looking at my preliminary research right now and I'm finding the same thing. I'm finding that, uh, just for example, there's almost no difference whatsoever in the education when days are more preparedness than there are from non-resilient citizens. Their income levels are roughly the same. Actually, instead of being, uh, uh, you know, these poor redneck preppers from Tennessee, they're actually uh, a little bit uh, higher in income as far as compared to uh, regular citizens. They are more likely, however, to have more money saved for, uh, for emergencies rather than, than regulars are. There is quite a few individuals that are uh, non-white. So we have about 25% of these individuals that are uh, Black, Hispanic, uh, Asian, uh, Alaskan, or, uh, or surprisingly, there's a pretty high percentage of uh, Hawaiian Islanders or Pacific Islanders that have these higher levels of preparedness. So overall, crosscut-wise, I'm finding through the data that in these individuals, while not an exact crosscut of Americans, are a lot closer to um, the norm than we would think. Brad? Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, uh, again, quite a, quite a different approach with my research. I was... Um, <clears throat> I spent a long time at a cork board trying to kind of, you know, do this dangerous thing that you, that you do in sociology and anthropology, creating typologies of people. <laughs> I, I sort of, so I, I obviously ran into all of these news stories at the beginning of my project about billionaire bunkers, right? These people who are um, buying a multi-million dollar space inside these subterranean citadels. And yes, of course, I was interested in seeing that. Uh, both to make sure that they're real, because, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell with the media these days what's actually, and we can go into that. I found all sorts of garbage on the internet that, I, you know, actually didn't exist when I when I showed up on the ground. Okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, we can go into that. Um, but I was also interested in, in the kind of um, the carryover from the Cold War, you know, so, you know, the, the during the Cold War, there was a kind of move to uh, dig up backyards and people's suburbs and bury bunkers and those bunkers would be essentially built for yourself and your family um, and they were all sorts of dystopian um, uh, science fiction scenarios uh, revolving around who you let into your bunker and don't um, but so I wanted to see you know what was the carryover from from that as well you know did you, do you still have people putting bunkers in their backyard mm -hmm. as opposed to this kind of multi-million dollar communal um, uh, bunker that seems to be something quite like new. A regular guy's bunker. Does it exist? The regular guy's bunker. Yeah. Um, but then, I, but then, you know, at sort of the other end of the scale, you know, maybe getting more towards survivalism or bushcrafting. You know, I wanted to meet people who were who were skilling up, just learning how to grow food or install solar panels or um, uh, build weapons. And so I, I was looking for communities that were operating across this kind of, you know, I imagine it as a, as a scale of, of preparation, right? I didn't want to get stuck um, as much of the media does in, in looking at the spectacle of the bunker. Mm. Um, as fascinating as it is, as a, as a cultural phenomenon, I wanted to kind of get a broader spectrum of what was going on with these preppers. So my approach was to uh, uh, to start speaking to people and get myself invited into these communities, which obviously involved skilling up myself mm -hmm. <laughs> on, you know, 
just the knowledge, the 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 you know, the language that is used specific to the community. Um, you need to be able to to speak the language a bit in order to to be accepted. Um, uh, I <clears throat> started shooting guns again, which I hadn't done in a long time, just so I had a little bit of, you know, if if someone asked me, I could sort of, you know, uh, again speak that language. Um, but I, uh, it was very slow getting access to these communities. Um, you know, they, they get pummeled with media requests and, um, and there was also some suspicion within the community of, you know, oh, I'm in a, I'm at a liberal academic institution and what am I going to do with this knowledge? You know, uh, maybe slightly suspicious of my motivations as well. But once I got into these communities, I found them to be incredibly open, welcoming, um, uh, they were very happy to share their knowledge with me, to, sh to speak with me about their motivations. Um, I mean, I, I ended up going to people's houses, having dinner with their families, um, staying for weeks at a time in some of these communities. And, um, and I essentially used a snowball sampling strategy. So I would say, you know, who, who else at the end of time spent, you know, who else do you think I should talk to? And then they would send me to my next location. So I, I essentially did that for three years and I ended up going to uh, eight countries. Um, and, uh, so I, I got also, I mean, in addition to that sort of scale of, um, of, of preparations, I also got this amazing cultural breadth, you know, finding how people were preparing in different parts of the world, which was uh, shockingly different. Um, so, uh, sort of towards the end of that research process, I ran into Chris's work and it was, it was so amazing because it was like the missing link, you know, yeah. I had been doing all this work and people were constantly asking me, well, how many people are prepped? You know, um, uh, how, how, how widespread is this? And, you know, tell me about the demographics. And I didn't have any of that information because I wasn't working that way. So it was, it was so perfect when I, when I found his research and then I was able to, um, you know, pull him into the conversation whenever someone asked me that question and say, okay, well, I, I actually have that data. I can, I can pass that along to you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have yet to find um, my counterpart, um, my quality or quantitative counterpart, who's really dug <laughs> into the subsistent, like backyard food production numbers. Nobody's done. It. It's so hard to measure, too. Um, you know, it's just like one of those things where there's no good, almost no good data sets on it. Um, so it's yeah, but it that feels is, like we should all do research this way. We should always have it's the yin and yang. You know, you need the yeah. qualitative and the quantitative counterparts yeah, exactly. to make a all research projects. Exactly. So, okay. So you mentioned a typology. Um, maybe it would be useful now to call on Chris. Um, I don't know if you, I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't remember your whole typology, because actually some of the things I wrote in my research, I'm like, I'll have to go back and look at the table. Um, but could you give us a sense of like some of the types of people you came across, um, Chris? And I know, I know you, you did end up making a typology in your, in your dissertation. I did. And so, again, I mean, very, very thankful for Brad's work. Uh, when I originally wrote my uh, application for Cornell, my plan, this is pre-COVID, was uh, to go around the world and, and interview people who did bunkers. And then, you know, a few months in, I'm like, oh, look, a person wrote a book on that. Well, there goes that. We have to find something else. <laughs> and COVID happened as well. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going with numbers then. Uh, so... I have five main uh, heuristics, and these are heuristics. These are rules of thumb. These are not hard and fast. There's a lot of people that, that blend over into others and are multiple things, but I have five heuristics for resilient citizens. First and foremost, there are homesteaders. Their primary motivation are pollution or climate change or overpopulation. 
food shortages, things along those lines. And they look, uh, they live a sustainable lifestyle, they grow crops, et cetera. And they're usually, but not exclusively rural. We do see some on the outskirts of Chicago and we definitely see some, some urban uh, homesteaders as well. And there's some overlap with other things that are not quite homesteader, but close like cottage core or people who like tiny homes or community gardeners, things like that. Outside of the U.S., there's this uh, Jantelagen, uh, which is Swedish, and it's kind of like this, uh, everything that is good is, is public. So if you have an apple tree growing in your yard, it's okay to, to publicly forage on that as long as you're not strip mining it. Hmm. Then there's the faithful. Uh, these are individuals that are, that are motivated by the supernatural, end times events, the, the rapture, things along those lines. And a lot of these individuals believe there'll be tribulation on earth. There's not going to be a pre-rapture. Like a lot of these Christians or Mormons will go through a period of tribulation with the earth and then later on be raptured. And so they prepare for this uh, uh, against an antichrist religion. Uh, Mormons are ubiquitous for this, but there are other faiths included. But they're very distinct and different from cults. We're not talking about people drinking cooler. We're talking about very normal individuals that live in Utah or throughout the world. Then there's the Sentinels. Uh, up until maybe just a few years ago, the Sentinels were the gun group. Those are the ones that people really focused on, this gun group. Uh, these were the without rule of law, and they were ready for the zombie apocalypse and to shoot anybody that came on their property, et cetera. Uh, and they overlapped with, uh, but are distinct from extremists, uh, from hunters, from uh, hate groups, white supremacists, uh, the groups that existed up in the Pacific Northwest for a long time, uh, these armed government, and also armed government entities. I would consider a lot of the U.S. military to be in this sentinel group because we have a lot of our continuity of government bunkers that are for us and for uh, for uh, members of Congress and cabinet members, et cetera, Mount Weather, Raven Rock. These are all publicly available uh, information type places, these large bunkers in the East Coast. Then we have the interdependence, which are absolutely the hardest to measure writ large because they are more of the public face of preppers. Uh, they are about the survival of the neighborhood or the community. Uh, there's an insanely high variance. And then there's individuals like Zombie Squad. There's individuals like New York City Preppers Group, uh, multiracial spaces. You might even include some individuals that are from Hong Kong, for example. This is pre-China uh, takeover uh, that kind of were just ready for, for that event. Uh, and they're different, though, uh, from like your community uh, emergency response teams. And then the final event is the Brad Garrett Group, the, the bunker groups. These are the individuals that are ready for the big ones. Uh, nuclear war, large-scale economic collapse, the collapse of America, World War III, um, far more secretive, usually far more wealthy, especially on these bigger bunkers like survival condo. Um, but they're overlapping. They're, just, they're distinct from people who just own a panic room. Uh, and they're definitely uh, distinct from, like I said, the U.S. government with our, with our large-scale bunkers. But they also have uh, places like in Israel, they have the Mahmouds, which are the panic rooms there. So there's some definite overlap as you look at these at different groups. So those are the five typologies that I found for uh, for these preppers or these resilient nice. citizens. Yeah, and Brad, does that um, does that resonate with you, or did you go like, did you end up making a typology? Um, and I'm curious if you ended up coming up with a way uh, to describe, or or maybe a typology of why people got into it. Were there, um, you know, did you did you end up coming up with something like that? I did. I did come up with a typology, but being a geographer, it's more spatial. Um, so I tend to think about how spaces are being built, you know, um, whether, uh, you know, whether it's a communal space, whether it's an individual space, or whether it's um, uh, these more kind of homestead groups that are uh, not necessarily living together, but maybe have kind of interconnected, interconnected properties and who are, who are building um, complementary skills to be able to assist each other, mutual assistance groups, as mm. we, as we call them. Um, 
<clears throat> so my typology was was pretty loose, but it was important to me that I got um, a, a sort of a broad spread on who was prepping. And it's really interesting, you know, in term, in the context of those homestead preppers um, and uh, uh, sustainability initiatives more generally that, you know, I expected when I went into this that it was going to be hardcore bunker builders, lots of guns, you know, the Sentinels were the ones that I expected to encounter. Mm. But, um, but you do find that there's a lot of bleed between these groups. And I'm sure Chris can testify to that as well, that you know, I would show up in these bunker communities and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, <clears throat> one of the first communities I went to uh, is called the X Point. It's in South Dakota. And there are 575 concrete igloo bunkers that were constructed during World War II to protect munitions. So they were these, these are bunkers that were full of weapons. Um, and uh, the, the base was decommissioned and the bunkers had been empty for a very long time. Uh, in fact, they've been they've been used by a rancher for grazing, and so they're all full of cow poop, I mean, oh. like feet feet of cow poop. <laughs> um, and a, a, a property developer from California, Robert Vecino, <clears throat> who's also a, a hardcore doomsday prepper, um, decided that he was going to turn this into a prepper community. So he he um, started uh, he acquired the land and he started leasing out these bunkers. Um, it was $25,000 to buy in. And essentially what you're buying is an empty concrete shell. So they would come in and, and scoop out the cow poop and, and clean it up for you. But you would get this empty that shell and that, and that was it. And then you've got to work with it. <clears throat> so I was there on day one. Uh, and there were four families that bought in immediately and started building out their bunkers. And, uh, and I, I just lived with them and worked with them. I helped them build stuff. And, um, you know, we would go to the shooting range every day and, and uh, um, plunk off some rounds. But then we would go back and, uh, you know, everyone would cook dinner together. We started installing solar panels. We're talking about, um, you know, where the water infrastructure is going to come from. You know, what's the growing season here? Everyone got out the farmer's almanac. You know, <laughs> we're trying to sort of crack the code. You know, how do you turn this into a sustainable community? Um, so I did find that there was, a, you know, even though I, I, you know, had this tendency to want to put everyone into a certain group, um, uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of bleed between those groups. And I was surprised by how diverse, um, the communities were, um, uh, you know, there, as Chris mentioned, I mean, you have to have some disposable income, obviously to buy the bunker. And so, but a lot of these people were working class people that had just saved their money, you know, plumbers, uh, mechanics. Um, uh, there was one guy that worked in IT that was actually working remotely from his bunker. I thought that was amazing. <laughs> um, uh, but but they uh, all were, and and these people had different political beliefs, right? I mean, they, they, it, they there was a broad span of everything from kind of like, you know, super hippies who wanted to go off grid, um, to the hardcore QAnon conspiracy theorists, and they were all living together. <laughs> and I, you know, it was kind of shocking to me, right? But it's, I mean, it's a, one of these rare instances where you, you, um, where the political partisan divide in the United States breaks down because everyone is there focused on shared methodologies. You know, how do we grow? How do we build? How do we fix this problem? And everyone's there working on it together, and they would forget that they disagree <laughs> about, you know, broadly about why they're there, essentially. Right. Right. Um, 
so yeah, so my my type my typology, the more time I spent in the field, got muddier and muddier. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, one of the beautiful things about qualitative research, you know. Yeah. It screws up all your expectations. <laughs> right, which is the point. Yeah, that this it's so funny that you say that. That's exactly what I found in my dissertation research, which was um, when people start talking shop about food production stuff, like they don't need to really say like, are you producing food because you are like, you believe in degrowth or because you're an NRA person? Like, no, you yeah. just like, we're just talking about chickens, you know, and, and mites and like chicken coops. <laughs> it's, it's like, it really is pretty exciting. The potential um, possibilities once you unlock that and see that in action, even among Americans, especially who, who are like supposedly, you know, not so, maybe not uh, comparing to the world, but you know, we all know are, are you know, in an extremely divisive place. Um, re relevant to that, to that conversation, one of the things I think that um, keeps bunkers and prepping at arm's length for some of the people in like, let's just say, uh, doomer optimism, a lot of people are interested in homesteading, you know, partially in a from a preparedness point of view, but then they think something along the lines of if I were to get a bunker, um, you know, basically the world would be too shit at that point. Like I wouldn't want to live in a world in which I would need a bunker or something like that. Um, so I'm wondering if you guys have heard that um, or if people in your communities or your research have talked about something like that. Basically, like at least the way I see it, it's a sort of spectrum of preparedness, be prepared for all different uh, potentialities. And I mean, there could be a situation where you are in a bunker for a week and it gets you through the worst part of something and then you come back out and like life goes on. Um, but I think some people, I don't know, just have this icky feeling about it. So I'm wondering if you've encountered that um, or, you know, what your thoughts are about that, either of you. Okay. Yeah, let me, let me take you back to South Dakota again, because um, when I was there with those first four families, that was in 2017. Well, I came back in 2019, just before the pandemic, and there were now 30 some families living there. <laughs> and um, uh, you have to imagine this. So it's, you know, it's the middle of South Dakota. So it's kind of, you know, rolling plains, very open. There's sort of one hill where you could get signal, um, but in, in the, the rest of the place is pretty much dark. And people had been building out their bunkers for years and they were extremely comfortable. They were really, they were, I mean, it felt, it felt like a kind of typical middle-class American neighborhood, you know, white picket fences, American flags on the doors. Um, uh, some of them did artificial lights inside the bunker. Um, uh, survival condo, which we can also talk about, did this amazing thing where they they put lights in the ceiling that emu emulate the circadian rhythm. So wow. night and day actually changes inside the bunker. Very yeah. cool. Um, uh, so, they, you know, they put a lot of thought into making the bunker a home. Uh, and um, that was a full family affair. You know, sometimes I would go out there to visit and there would be, they would have, you know, it'd be husband, wife, kids. They've got, they've got grandkids. They've got cousins over. Everyone's working on the bunker. They brought presents. They're hanging pictures. Um so, you know, this isn't like, this isn't like a, like a Cold War sad concrete bunker that you're stuck in, you know, it's supposed to be a place that's kind of a, a retreat, you know, rather than using your disposable income to buy a boat or an RV, you bought the bunker and you try and make it home. Mm. Um, but the, but the community is also key here because you're driving down a road 
and as I say, it kind of feels like like a typical American suburb, you know, where you would have sort of cookie cutter houses, but they're just bunkers instead. Uh, but everyone's outside chatting with their neighbors. <clears throat> and when COVID hit, uh, I was in Los Angeles with my mom, which was one of the worst places to be. And so we, we went into total lockdown. Um, and I sent them emails and I said, what, how are you guys handling this? Did you, are you using the bunker? Is it actually serving its purpose? And and most of them said, yeah, we just, you know, once we heard that things were, uh, that it was spreading out of Wuhan, we just packed up the car and we drove out to the bunker and we're all here. And we know we, no one has it in the bunker community because we all got here early and we're all having a barbecue and just waiting to see what, what's going to happen, you know? And um, some of them stayed for three weeks. Some of them stayed for three months. Um, but the bunker functioned as intended. It was a, it was a, a temporary stopgap to allow them to sort of assess the situation. Um, and so, so, you know, they were building those bunkers for a range of events, whether it was nuclear war or civil unrest or a pandemic. And in all cases, you know, the bunkers is not supposed to be a place that you move into permanently. And, and many of them told me, you know, if there were to be a, a, a horrible nuclear exchange and, and millions of people died, I wouldn't want to emerge from the bunker into that world. There's no point. Um, that's not that's not what it's there for. And the the message that I got over and over again was that uh, was was a message message of hope, right? That if you like if you don't have hope about the future, there's no point in building the bunker. You you know you might as well just walk into the blast. Um, so you know the bunker isn't supposed to be where we live. It's just supposed to act as a bridge. Um, and that's how I started thinking of it. Um, and in fact, many of them described it to me as, as a bridge or an arc. You know, you get into the bunker and it takes you across and, you know, hopefully you arrive safely. Yeah, that, that totally resonates. Um, you know, for me, that's a, the, the Doomer Optimism podcast. And I think a lot of people think like there's no optimism in prepping. Like, I don't want to live in a world in which I have to prep or like be in a bunker. And I, I think that's totally it wrongheaded. It's right along the same spectrum as everything else where, where the optimism is like, you know, I don't really want to lay over or roll over. I mean, what if, um, you know, a bunker with the right um, uh, ventilation systems could get you through a wildfire or something like that, you know, where you just, yeah, yeah. you're just there in the, in the meantime, the fire passes and then you rebuild. Um, it's very uh, mythical almost. Um, Chris, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, you know, the, the tension between like the singular event preparedness versus sort of like living in preparedness. I, I do. So to, I have a lot of things on this. So it's, it's like an Overton window. People think that you're going to go from zero to zombie apocalypse in like one day. <laughs> Yeah. No, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to have the AK-47s downstairs with your 50,000 rounds and your, you know, your, your barrel drums and your generator and, you know, like the video game, Mr. Prepper. It's not going to be that way. You know, you do these things in, in nice, small, incremental steps. And maybe it's just as simple as, you know what, we're going to teach the kids how to go camping. And we're going to go out camping, we're going to set up a tent and we're going to get some charcoal. We're going to roast some, you know, hot dogs and make some s'mores. And that's just like this, that's not the end of the world, but that's one of those skill sets you can bring up or maybe first aid, things along those lines. So let me just give you some numbers right now, because this is starting to change. Uh, in 2017, this is just U.S. data alone, and I've, I've asked some other countries to do some data research on this, and we may be actually getting some out later on out of, uh, out of one of the Nordic countries, we'll see. Uh, I've asked a couple other countries in Asia as well if they're going to go survey their citizens. 
But here's the numbers. In 2017, about 3.8% of Americans were what I call resilient citizens, 31 days or more preparedness. That is now, and that was around a little under 10 million people in America. That has now increased to, in 2020, to 5.8%, around uh, just around 15 million individuals. So these numbers are increasing and it's monotonic. It's been getting bigger every single year. So COVID did have an impact, but it wasn't massive. Yes, on the extreme scale, there was a very large jump. We went from about 1.6 of individuals that had 97 days or more. And the reason I use 97 is because FEMA coded anybody at over 97, if you had one year, two years, six months, as 97 days. We saw a jump of 1.6 of Americans at that level to 2.6% of Americans at that level from 17 to 20. And that uh, represented a, a pretty sizable jump as far as the, just the overall numbers, about 4 million to upwards of just around 7 million for these ultra highly resilient citizens. When you look at just overall everyday Americans writ large across from 17 to 20, you see an increase in the number of days of preparedness writ large. The average American in 2017 had 9.7 days. Now they have around 12.4 days. This is all preliminary research that I usually find errors in. So this is kind of my back of the napkin uh, math right now. So there's the numbers. When it comes to these big bunker things or this big whatever, this, this large scale event of why the hell should I even live in a world like this? I think that there's a lot of uh, a psychological breakpoints. So I want you all to go back to March and April timeframe of 2020 when the pandemic was just hitting. I remember being the first non-Asian on Cornell to have a mask and go into class with a mask on. And it was exceptionally difficult. I remember going into Aldi's and shopping and one of the first individuals to wear a mask, and I felt completely uh, alien and different. I remember coming home just drenched in sweat because of just the social approbation that I was definitely sticking out. I was weird. I was different. Yeah. Uh, and then I, we were washing things with uh, with hand sanitizer. We were washing all our groceries. I was going, I I was going with gloves. Gloves and exactly. Mac. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But then the government comes know. in and says, you know, first of all, they first said, you know, don't wear a mask because we were trying to save it for the, the healthcare workers. But then and it started to become normalized and everybody started to do it. And we got through this together. So uh, when your neighbors start doing these things and you start seeing your neighbors do it, that's the psychological breakpoint. You know, so Thomas Kuhn's scientific uh, revelation, uh, revolutions, when others start doing things and you start seeing it, it becomes public. And when you have the overhead uh, of the government saying this is a good thing to do, that's when things start to change. So many examples. Israel mandates you have to have a panic room, a mamot. Why? Because of the Palestinian rockets and mortars come across you're trying to save your family. Switzerland mandates that you either have your own private bunker or you pay a special tax that you can go into to that. Finland and Sweden have bunkers. Um, right now, there's a lot of missile tests in North Korea. So if Japan came out and said, hey, we want you to start looking at having a hard room because of you know, the North Korea threat, that would happen. Taiwan just released a brand new disaster manual that just came out last week. Uh, and it's more geared towards natural disasters. But there is definitely, if you read through it, there's a big, huge wink, wink, nod, nod of fears of Chinese invasion. And there's lots of pictures of people with guns in this natural disaster survival handbook. So I think the real break point is when your neighbors start doing these things and when the government kind of gives you that psychological allowance to do so. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts um, on the, the sort of optimism of prepping. Uh, you know, I, we talked a little bit about it with Brad, but, you know, do you feel like there is optimism in in being prepared, it seems like more and more people are getting into it. Um, you know, what's the, yeah, what's the psychological uh, approach to this, basically? 
So uh, living here in Hawaii was nice. My wife and I flew over to the Big Island a, a couple weeks ago, and we went to Kilauea, and we stayed at the River of the Crater. So we were living on an active volcano, which was fantastic, and it was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. And I learned a new Hawaiian word there, and the word, the word is kepuka. And a kepuka is when uh, there's a big, massive lava eruption, and the lava comes down the mountain, and it goes around a section of forest. That forest now becomes an island completely and utterly surrounded by lava. And Kaipuka is the name of that island. It's an island of light. It's the green forest surrounded by a lava flow. And I know, Ashley, you tweeted out uh, without uh, attribution to me, so I'm hurt by that. This, this Ethiopian village, all these little places that had the trees everywhere. You said you got it from Facebook, so I'll, I'll, I'll let that slide. Uh, but it was the same concept. You're kind, of, you're kind of surviving in this area. And so there's this optimism portion to that because you're trying to help not only your family, but your community as well. And you can only reach so far, but you have an impact on those locals around you. As far as the sliding scale, I think of it this way. When you get into your car, you put your seatbelt on. That will save you or prevent some injuries from certain types of disasters. You may have a car that has airbags that will help you up at, a, at a higher level. You may have a car that has anti-lock brakes. So all of these different things are going to help you for different types of disasters. Anti-lock brakes are going to help out in, in snowy road conditions. The airbags, not so much. But no, they're not going to prevent you from dying if you get, you know, T-bone at an intersection from an 18-wheeler going 60 miles an hour. Right. But they're going to help. And so if I have a bunker and I only use it for a tornado, if I have, uh, you know, thousands of rounds of ammunition and the only thing I ever do out is go out deer hunting or boar hunting, okay, that's fine. But there's this nice sliding scale where you move along and at each step, you become more resilient, you become more anti-fragile and you get better over time and more and are more uh, uh, able to survive a larger range of disasters. So there's the optimism part for me. Yeah. And you hope your neighbors. Yeah. Uh, Brad, do you have anything to add to that before we move on to a different question? Definitely. Um, <clears throat> one of my, my guiding lights through my research was Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the existentialist philosopher who many people mislabel as gloomy or, or pessimistic. Um, but he wrote this little book about dread that I, I carried around with me for about three years. Um, and it's, it's an incredible book, but he describes dread as being about the future rather than the present, right? So the, the, if you're, if you're, uh, if we're in the present tense, you know, it's fear, we're reacting to something directly, but if it's in the future tense, it's dread, we're, we're it's speculative, right? It's a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. What if this happened, what would happen to me? Right. And, and he says that he describes dread as the dizziness of freedom because there's too many there's too many choices to think about, right? You get overwhelmed. And of course, in today's world, <laughs> we've never in the, in the course of human history been subjected to so much, so much information, so many different possible situations, um, um, you know, so much, uh, you know, dread surrounding what could happen, you know, the crumbling of the environment or whatever. So what I heard from these preppers again and again, as I asked them, why, why are you, building this thing, essentially that what they were saying to me was that it was a salve for that dread, right? Mm. That in building that they told me again and again, this isn't really about what's going to happen in the future. It's about right now. This is making me feel good right now. I'm controlling the parameters of my existence. I'm learning how to do stuff. Like I'm upskilling, you know, um, especially the, the uh, guy at X point who worked in IT, you know, he told me I sit in front of a computer screen all day long. I have no idea how to fix a car or grow food. 
so you know the bunker is 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 my excuse you know it's like it's like men going fishing so that they can talk to each other (laughs) the bunker is my excuse to learn how to how to how to skill up on these things and that was giving him solace in the present and i i i think that's something that um that was the biggest takeaway for me um i bought a uh, 1972 GMC Sierra truck. And I've been, um, I just rewired the ignition the other day and like, what an amazing feeling when you fire that up and it works. <laughs> um, but, but the better feeling is like, if this broke in the future, I could fix it. If there is no mechanic, I can do this now. Right. So I've learned a new skill. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the thing that I, I take away from prepping that I find really hopeful, you know, building community, learning new skills, all of that is is such an important part of uh, these bunker communities that I spent time in. Do you have something? I'll jump in just a little bit on that for Brad. So this is this is the centerpiece of my dissertation of what I really was trying to like let folks know about, and it's ontological security, which is a fancy term of saying it's the security of the self, it's the mm-hmm. security of being, and this has been applied not just to prepping. I, I think I was one of the first people to apply it to prepping and, and uh, you know doomer optimism, mm-hmm. but it's been applied to a ton of different things. But it is it is a state of being. But when you're ontologically secure, you feel like you have reduced uncertainty in life. You have manageable levels of anxiety. You feel stable to establish routines and resist change. You can exercise your agency and it becomes recursive. So you interact with society, have some anti-fragileness, learn a new skill, rewire your car, you get better. Then you go to the next thing. I'm going to grow the three sisters. Then you do the next thing. I'm going to learn first aid. I'm going to do the next thing. I'm going to go out camping, et cetera. And you get, you get more ontologically secure as your abilities go up. And it's this nice, you know, up ramp. Uh, of abilities and, and security and you know, your, your own centralized feelings, a psychological, psychological worth uh, and choice and agency. I love that. I've never heard you say that phrase yet. And I love it so much. It's like, it's so, it so encapsulates everything that we're interviewing people about, which I have the hardest time coming up with words for, cause it's just like uh, meaning skills. I don't, you know, it's like all, you know, <laughs> anything worth living for. I don't know. Um, so, uh, Brad, I'd be curious to hear a little bit of debunking of the media myth, myth, mythos around preppers, rich preppers, what places don't actually exist, um, what places do actually exist. Like, what is, what is the media trying to tell us bunker people are? Um, versus, uh, we, we've heard a little bit from you already what they actually are, but what, what are they, what are they telling us they are? And why do you think they're telling us that? You know, it's um, the uh, I try to separate in my book the people who are buying into these bunker communities who are, you know, as I've described, pretty much, you know, everyday people who, who um, are feeling a sense of dread they want to alleviate and they want to create a safe space for their families and learn new skills and create communities. I try to separate them from those who are selling them the bunkers um, mm. because they are two very different categories of people. Um, I, I call the the bunker sellers in my book the dread merchants mm. because um, it it's in their interest to stoke people's fears, to perpetuate that dread, to convince them that things really are going that wrong. You know that you that you need to buy into this space, um, and unfortunately, they, they work hand in hand with the media. You know the media loves these shock stories about. Uh, you know, you're you're in danger, your family's in danger. If you don't read this article now, if you don't read it top to bottom, if you don't watch TV 24 hours a day, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to have the information you need to deal with the situation. And in fact, so much of that is is actually, I mean, you'd be much better off spending your time 
building a bunker than watching the news <laughs> telling you that you should have one. Um, but they also, you know, as, I mean, it's just such an unfortunate situation that we've, we've arrived at this point where the media has to caricature everyone, mm. um, you know, in, in order to garner ratings. And so they, they tend to be interested with the most spectacular bunkers. Um, survival condo, which keeps coming up in this conversation, uh, it, we should probably dive into that one a little bit because that's the one that, that is constantly um, uh, in the news. Yeah, so I'd this love is to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. So this is a this is, this is a um, an Atlas F missile silo from the Cold War that was decommissioned. Uh, uh, the 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 missile in the warhead was removed from the bunker, and it was purchased by another property developer called Larry Hall, um, who uh, drained the bunker and uh, built and built essentially an inverted skyscraper inside the bunker. I call it a geoscraper um, because you go down rather than up, but it feels sort of similar uh, as you move through uh, floors of apartments and then down into communal spaces and then engine rooms. Um, and his goal in, in building Survival Condo, which he invested $10 million in, was to create a completely um, self-sufficient uh, structure. So um, he's got uh, three different uh, power systems. He's got solar, solar wind, and diesel generators as a backup. He's also got a, a huge uh, battery bank system in there. Uh, they've got an aquaponics growing facility. They're raising tilapia inside the bunker. Uh, they have a, a huge amount of of, of stockpiles. Um, and essentially, what this is supposed to be is it's a it's a it's a turnkey bunker for very wealthy people who don't want to build their own. Mm. Um, so you can buy a a half floor, so imagine it as a circle, right? So you can buy a half floor apartment for uh, 1.5 million or a full floor for 3 million. And then in one case, there was one that went for four and a half million. It was a, a two stories, you combined two. Um, so what's interesting about that bunker is that, is that no one lives in it. It's completely empty. I mean, it's you know state of the art, um, completely off grid, guarded, 24 hours a day by security guards and remote weapon systems. Um, and there's no one in it. It's just, it's a, it's an empty space. And the people who, who have bought into it, there are 57 residents in total. Um, most of them don't know each other. So they've just plopped down the cash thinking that they would buy their way out of that sense of dread that they were feeling. Um, and the overwhelming sense that I got from them was that it didn't work. You know, you can't, you can't buy your way out of this feeling. You have to work your way out of this feeling. Um, and that requires community connection. Um, you know, it's not just about the technical details and the engineering, you know, the, the, the social atmosphere is absolutely crucial um, in order to, to assuage that feeling of that, of apprehension. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, these, these spaces are, uh, um, sort of pitched by the media as the, uh, you know, the best money can buy. And what I found on the ground was that they, they really aren't. And in fact, uh, a couple of the, the places that I went to visit that end up in the media all the time. So there's one, there's one called uh, Vivos Europa, which is, which is purportedly also built by Robert Vecino, the property developer that built the exploit in South Dakota. Um, uh, I mean, there, there are photos of this thing, like 
you know, there's this underground swimming pool and, um, uh, and bunk beds and it all looks very sort of lush. But if you look a little bit closer, they're all CGI. They're, they're not actually <laughs> photographs inside this space. And um, so I, I kept over years, I kept prodding him, you know, let me go, let me go see it. I want to go see it. I'll fly to Germany. I want to yeah. go see the bunker. And he kept putting me off. And I'm um, finally one day he just said, it's just a shell. There's nothing there's, we haven't built anything yet. And I, you know, and it, I, it occurred to me, um, of course, that he was likely taking deposits mm. from, from people for this space that they had never seen thinking that it had been built. Um, and that's, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's the worst kind of snake oil salesman, right? Like you bought space in a bunker thinking it would, it would save your life. And it's not even there. It's not ready. Yeah. Uh, terrible. There was another instance in, in, um, uh, Texas. I went to a place called Trident Lakes that was going to be this sprawling one mile square doomsday prepper community with shipping containers buried around the edges and. Uh, armed guards and they they were going to build these blue lagoons um with semi-subterranean condos where you could you could drop this blast shutter over the front um again i i did the i looked at all the cgi drawings i went to the site there were there was construction equipment out there they were building stuff it was totally fascinating and i kept waiting year after year for this thing to be completed and then um uh just as i was finishing my book the ceo of that uh, of that um, development was arrested by the FBI. And it turns out that he took $200,000 from what he thought was a Colombian drug cartel and tried to launder it through all of the, the um, deposits that were coming in for people buying into the community. He tried to launder the money. Uh, and um, yeah, he, he's now in federal prison. Mm-hmm. And this, and this doomsday prepper community is sort of, you know, half built out in the middle of Texas and will never be finished. Um, and uh, obviously, I mean, it, it, they, they built it in a town of 300 people and the local residents were just incredulous, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This millionaire came in, he's going to build this thing and now he's in prison. <laughs> oh so my God. I, I ran it. I ran into a lot of that. And I, I, Frankly, I've, I've started firing off emails to the media when they run these stories about places that don't exist um, mm. because I'm just, I'm fed up with it. You know, I, I email them and I say, you need to do your research or at least call someone else who has. Right. Because you keep running these stories and and you're, you are contributing to the dread merchants duping people into buying into these spaces that don't exist. Right. You know? I mean, I think there's actually grounds for um, people to sue the media over being misled about whether these places exist. I mean, that's the whole role of a journalist. You're supposed to find out whether it's true or not uh, yeah. before you run the story. Well, I mean, it's and crazy. I think that it's crazy your, to me. <laughs> your point, though, between um, those who think they can't, who are who are afraid, and then think they can just sort of buy their way out or sell their way out of like managing the the fear and the dread. Um, fundamentally from the those who are like doing the work and building the things and building the skills within themselves there's a huge bifurcation there and I think um something a lot of people don't um think about or talk about much they just think you know I think there's a lot of people who are uh, who totally pedal on doom um and just want more people afraid because it you know not only um gets clicks and content um you know it could actually sell sell these places um 
you know, one thing that comes to mind is I just ran this homesteading class um, where Chris was a, a lecturer and the people who got the most out of the homesteading, I didn't teach it. I, I got a bunch of different homesteaders to come teach it. Newbie homesteaders, they're like just asking questions. Um, how do I even get started kind of thing? Get, get them up to speed really quickly as opposed to like making them go through all these YouTube videos. And the people who got the most out of it were the ones who showed up every day, who tried what, we, what the instructors were suggesting they try and come back with their problems, not the ones who uh, the wealthiest um, potential uh, students who kind of just wanted like the content dropped in their lap. Like you don't, it's not just content though. <laughs> the homesteading thing, it, it's like the only way out is through is like doing the thing and then reporting back and like, and problem solving. So there's some parallels there. Um, I'm wondering if there are, if we can talk um, briefly about historical precedents for like thinking about disaster, thinking about bunkers, thinking about um, preparedness, um, if we could, or, or not, maybe not just um, historical, but different places in the world, what, what are the ways people think about it? Um, and the context for that question is, I think that um, the United States specifically, and I'm sure there are other places and times in history where this is the case, has just had such a long period of peace that people have a very hard time understanding like what what risks there are like in life in general um, and the, the difficulties that could arise or do arise for, for normal people uh, who, you know, who aren't in such wealthy times and places. Um, so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about almost like in my mind, the United States and, and the richest countries in the world right now are sort of the historical anomaly in terms of like thinking about preparedness. I don't know if you guys share that view. I'll take a swing at the pitch on that. I mean, so we think of preparedness as like this brand new thing. Like it didn't exist until, you know, until doomsday preppers came up or the financial crisis of 2008 or something like that. And that's false. I mean, you can go back and say, We'll look at the Bible and and, uh, and Joseph storing up grain for the seven years of famine. I mean, this is this is kind of a, a thing. If you go, if you tour anywhere in Europe, you'll find all these castles, and they've got these cache systems for water and all the storage for long term sieges. So preparedness uh, has got a pretty pretty long history. If you want to consider more modern day stuff, well, modern day bunkers came about from World War One during the Blitz when. British government said, hey, here's what was called an ARC, A-R-C, uh, a type of backyard shelter you can build to help pre prevent uh, you getting blown up by the Germans during World War One." And then during World War II, we had, we had that event, and then we had the Cold War come out. And with the Cold War, it was the nuclear fear. And so you had Life magazine saying, here's the way in which you can build a backyard bunker. Uh, and, and on and on and on. Uh, during World War II, you also had the Victory Garden. So, hey, you know, we, we, we're not selling nylon anymore and we're not selling a whole bunch of these things at home. So build a Victory Garden. Just yesterday, I was walking around Fort Island where I live and it was uh, it used to be an airfield that had a lot of the officers quarters here for the Navy during World War II. But they had a Victory Garden plot on this island during World War II because we're Hawaii and we're a ways away from the mainland for food. So this, this, this philosophy that prepping is something new or vogue or different is, is false. It's just like what you said, Ashley, we've, we've, had, we've had a long period of peace. Uh, and when things pop and change that, it, it, it kind of shocks individuals. So for example, in Sweden, they have a fantastic disaster manual and it's called In, in Times of Crisis or War. It's 21, 28 pages or so. 
And about 40% of it is dedicated to a, a war with Russia type scenario, though it doesn't name Russia, but it's a very militant type scenario about saying, what if this thing comes? Prior to Ukraine in 2001, that pamphlet was downloaded 800 times. In the couple weeks after Ukraine, that same pamphlet was downloaded by Swedes 88,000 times. It became like, oh my gosh, this is now in vogue again. And so that just kind of understanding of uh, this is this is a this is not the end of history. This is we're coming back to history in which uh, there are large scale shocks around the world in various different forms, pandemics, financial collapses, et cetera. And if you want to get doomy, I can give you some of the doomy stuff, but I'll say optimist for right now. Brad? <laughs> Yeah, I definitely would would echo what Chris said there. I'm, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, we can trace uh, back thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, people using caves, for instance, as places to store food, to stockpile materials, um, to build up their defenses, uh, to shelter from the elements. You know, the underground has always been a space of sanctuary, and. Um, it's always had this dual meaning as well. It's it's where we bury our dead. Um, it's where you know we go into darkness sometimes. So it's a it's a space of fear as well. Um, and I think that's where this kind of perception comes from. You know, this kind of fear of going into the bunker. Mm. Um, but if you if you think about it as a temporary space, as a bridge, um, then it it somehow becomes less menacing. I think, <laughs> and we've seen that in Ukraine, right? We've seen people actually using these bunkers that, I mean, ironically were built by the Soviet Union, most of them, mm -hmm. um, but using these bunkers that many people thought they were never going to have to use. And it has saved thousands of lives. There's no doubt about that. And this whole life underground has taken place. I mean, the babies have been born inside these bunkers um, and literally emerged into the sun for the first time from the underground. I mean, it is almost mythological. It's incredible yeah. um, seeing this happen, but um yeah, the, the kind of, you know, large scale excavation by human beings of, of human built spaces to shelter people has hasn't been happening for that long. Right. That's new. Um, and the United States is unique in the sense that, you know, we, we feel I mean, there's a certain kind of apathy that comes from safety that, uh, you know, we've we've fallen into. But we're also unique because most other countries in the world that have the resources to do this, uh, build shelters for their citizens. They take these things seriously. And Chris has mentioned a lot of these places, but you know, Israel, Sweden, um, South Korea, <laughs> Germany. I mean, these, you know, Ukraine, right? These, these are places that have public shelters for people ready and available. Um, we did that on a much smaller scale um, during the, the Cold War, essentially designating basements and parking garages as fallout shelters and doing some light modifications to make them a little more functional. Um, but the burden here has always been on individuals to take their own preparation seriously. And so um, even though, so here's the optimism, even though like those shelters weren't built for us and we don't have the public spaces that we would need to survive a large scale disaster, um, we're really good at taking care of ourselves. You know, we're Americans are really good at being self-sufficient at um, taking control of a situation when the government isn't right. And solving it ourselves or solving it with our communities. Um, I spent quite a lot of time in Salt Lake city when I was working on my book, um, talking to Mormon communities and their level of organization for a disaster is incredible. Um, 
and and they would you know as we were talking before about not just you can't just buy the stuff and shove it in your basement and then think that you're going to be able to to use it when you need it um they practiced what they called first in first out storage fifo storage so you know you when you went down to put in your your bucket of beans or whatever you make sure you pull out the old bucket of beans and then go and cook them you know like actually practice with everyone okay so let's tonight we can't go to the grocery there is no grocery store right so we're going to go into the basement and we're going to pull out some dehydrated food that's we're going to make for dinner and they would do that once a week and they would invite their neighbors over um, and they would say hey uh, we just went into our basement and realized we don't have any salt. Would you mind bringing some salt over and we're going to cook a pot of beans? Um, and so they would practice that preparedness. They would practice using the backup generator before they needed it, <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know? Um, so I, I think all of that is, you know, points to um, uh, an ability, uh, you know, maybe it may be a unique ability that Americans have to confront these kinds of things. Um, and the more, uh, as Chris said, the more that you see your neighbors doing this and the more that you invite them into the conversation and the more that you build complementary skill sets, uh, the more prepared we're all going to be for something that, you know, may or may not happen in the future. But in the meantime, it's it's a good practice anyway. Uh, right, right. I, I, um, yeah. And I, I love that because, yeah, I definitely think that there is like, <laughs> Doomer Optimism is always like these these pluses minuses okay so you know the u.s doesn't have the the best um let's just say like <laughs> most comprehensive welfare state for for you know its citizens but but then you know it it, it breeds a sort of self-reliance and and there is something to the culture of that like you know no one's coming to save me i'm gonna do it myself uh we'll figure this out um okay so one more question for chris and then i have a final um you know how do normal people get started kind of question um but chris lay lay it on us um what is the worst doom scenarios we need to be worried about at the moment <laughs> the worst uh yeah it's always good so i mean some disasters are very highly localized and it actually you know it specifies the way you should prepare so if you live on the goals i'll just use americans as an example just for 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 ease if you live on the Gulf Coast, it's the hurricane. So if you live in Florida, it probably makes a lot of sense that rather than try to hunker down and withstand the, the water surge, you know, and, and the storm surge, that you just, you, you drive to Arkansas or you drive to North Carolina and you just avoid it, especially because hurricanes are predicted days in advance before landfall and you've got a lot of time to do that. Uh, in the West, you've got wildfires. Sometimes you don't have as much warning, but if it's if it's a couple valleys over and the wind is blowing your direction, then you can you can get out. Sometimes you can't, like Paradise, California was an example. Um, so some disasters are very localized. It's prepared for your localized disaster because that while not be it might not be nuclear war, it might still be the disaster that takes out your entire home and kills your family because you weren't prepared. So uh, you know, kind of like politics is local, all disasters are local as well. Um, but then we have the, the two issues that are really kind of for the larger scale things, we have what are called compounding disasters and we have cascading disasters. So a compound disaster, the two are not related, but like two waves that meet in the ocean, they make a much larger wave, kind of a perfect storm. So an example, I'll, I'll just stick with hurricanes. In the age of COVID a year ago, if there was a hurricane that hit Florida and you were going to evacuate to your hurricane shelter, well, instead of being able to host a thousand people because of COVID, because of restrictions and masses like that, they might only limit it to 500 or 250 because of the numbers and the, the social distancing. So that's a compounding disaster, which two disasters make things harder. 
Then we have cascading disasters. These, these are causative to each other. So an example is an earthquake that strikes off the coast of Japan, creates a tsunami, which then hits the Fukushima nuclear reactor, which then causes a meltdown. That's a cascading disaster. So the two, the two large scale cascading and compounding disasters I see, because they're actually both happening right now, which is one of those perfect storm events, is both financial and societal. Uh, so I'll start with financial for a second. So the, the, the joke is that a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. Depression is when you, you lose yours. Well, right now we have these massive financial headwinds going on. Globally, we've got supply chains that are a mess right now because of, uh, of, of the Russia-Ukraine thing and just COVID writ large. We've got container ships that are stuck uh, in, uh, in the strait in, in, in Egypt uh, going up in the canal there. We've got uh, wheat and fertilizer coming from Russia. 12% of the world's calories flow out of Russia and Ukraine. This is going to hit the Middle East exceptionally hard. Uh, Egypt buys its bread for its populace. That's the, those costs are going to skyrocket. Here in America, we've got the bird flu. We've got 27 million birds that have been cold so far. The prices of eggs have gone from $1.20 on average, $1.40 on average in America, to around $3.20 uh, for a dozen eggs. You've got inflation at 8.5%. That's the official numbers. But the if you look at the shadow stats or things like that, it's at 13%. Uh, my checking account yields 0.01%. So I'm just slightly behind right now in, in keeping up. you got housing prices that have put another 9 million people out of, uh, out of the ability to buy their first home. So my, grand, my, my grandparents are doing fantastic. My parents are doing fantastic and selling their homes for hundreds of thousands of dollars more than they, than they were able to uh, buy it for. But my children are screwed right now. And I'm pretty financially well off, but I move every two to three years, so I don't buy a home. And I'm getting priced out of the market as, as a senior member of the military wanting to actually someday settle down and buy. So that's the financial portion, these compounding and cascading disasters that, uh, that go across. And there's several books on this that talk about this time is not different. That's actually the name of the book, This Time is Different, that talk about these financial crises are actually very cyclical. On the societal portion, we have these issues of we're more connected than we've ever been before, yet we're just as fractured as human beings as we were from the very beginning. So right now, America is still losing its mind over left versus right. America is still losing its mind right now over Elon Musk buying Twitter and people are hyperventilating what that means to free speech. We've got issues of vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers still. We have issues of migration, immigration, refugees, inequality, the Gini Index. Um, and then we also have in the West, this death of religion. So the, the, why not just go out and when the, when the bomb falls, just stand out and, you know, just take me because I have nothing to live for. Uh, but this death of Christianity is really in the West, but religion writ large is actually growing. 84% of the world identifies with religion and it's getting larger by 2050. It's predicted to be 87% of the world identifying with religion. So you have all these co-founding factors to see societal fractures, these financial fractures. And when they come together, uh, that creates this large sense of what uh, Bradley was talking about, this existential dread and the just the I'm just this fatalism. It just if, if it comes, it's just going to come. So why prepare for anything? Because I can't prepare for everything. So I'm just not going to. Yep. So there's okay. a worst case scenario for you. So, OK, perfect. So now that you laid all that out, because I actually do think part of doom or optimism is like knowing what the doom is <laughs> so that you can like appropriately respond, um, because I do think like. Yeah, there is, there is a, a case, I mean, obviously you don't want to obsess over the doom, which is part of the problem. You know, the, 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 some people who are just like everyday reading climate stats or something. Um, but okay, so now knowing the landscape of doom, how does one take the initial steps to get started? What are some heuristics? What are some things to be thinking about 
as they go towards, um, you know, let's just say preparedness generally. And then, and then it, you go first, Chris, and then Brad. Sure. So my wife's a fantastic example. So she's got, she's a, she's a teacher. She's been a teacher for 15 years. Uh, doesn't have a teaching job right now. But she's got a master's degree in teaching, finished up her horticultural degree at Cornell. And is she leading the University of Hawaii's horticulture thing? No, she's not. She's volunteering at these various fruit hooies, fruit hooey means group, all across Oahu. And she's learning the skills from these 60 and 70 and 80 year old uh, native Hawaiians about soursop and these other foods that, that I, I would swear come out of like children's storybooks that are so weird when she brings them home to me because I've never seen them before in my life. And what she's doing is she's, she's working uh, part-time at a uh, Pearl City High School and she's teaching kids how to do horticulture there. And what they're doing is they're weeding right now mm. or they're growing just these small little bits of fruit. Our next door neighbor, she's got, there's these neighbor kids around and she's built these small scale square foot gardens. So she's growing tomatoes, she's growing squash, she's growing cucumbers. We just started hydroponics for the first time ever. And we're learning our hydroponic thing was a clear shell. And so algae grew in the bottom. So she had to dip, dump all that out, <laughs> scraping everything black. And now she's, she's, she's restarting the hydroponics thing. So it's just these small little things that are communal in nature, building in nature. And that's the way you build things. We're building these kepukas, these islands of life, small level, and we're engaging the kids and the grandparents and our neighbors, and we're going to move on and kind of spread. So your, your vision of Rhizoma School is identical. It's these outshoots that go out and just build. So that's, that's the optimism, working with your local neighbors, getting a skill, starting from scratch, making your own bread, whatever it is. Start small and involve the locals. That, that is exactly right. Yeah. I, so my, my approach, I had been um, as an academic um, moving all around the world, like Chris, every two years, you know, I'm on to a new job, a new postdoc, a new whatever, you know, living in small apartments, um, renting, uh, and, and not having much of an understanding of where anything was coming from that was sustaining my life, right? <laughs> you just, you know, you just click a button and expect it to show up. And I, and I, the pandemic was a blessing for me in the sense that it's, it really slowed me down. I mean, it just, it stopped me. And then, it, and um, preppers told me this all the time during my project, that a, that a crisis is an opportunity for renewal. A crisis is an opportunity to uh, reassess your priorities. And that's exactly what happened to me. I came back home, um, spent much more time with my family, tried to take care of them, to protect them. But then also, I, I started to really appreciate <laughs> where I was from, you know, I've, I've traveled to 40 countries and, and lived in four. And um, suddenly, you know, home had this new meaning again. And so I um, was one of the lucky ones that kept my job through the pandemic. But then I suddenly had no rent to pay anymore, because I was back living with my parents, trying to take care of them. And I ended up saving up uh, enough of a deposit to buy a cabin in the woods in the in the forests outside of Los Angeles. And I bought a quarter acre. Uh, it's a very small cabin, uh, but it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And I immediately just dove into projects. I started doing woodworking. I tried to make my own desk. Um, I started growing, <laughs> I started growing food. I killed all of it. <laughs> I mean, my first, my first pumpkins, I was so excited to grow these pumpkins. And I had vines draping down the yard, and the pumpkins were all kind of lopsided, but I was very proud of them. We had one freeze and I came out 
and the vi- the vines were all transparent and flat and it was like it was like someone punched me in the throat you know <laughs> it was so terrible <laughs> but but you know what a wonderful lesson you know you have to protect these things you know they're 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 children um I met all of my neighbors. We started, we traded sourdough starters. We started baking bread together. We started doing community cleanup projects at a distance, you know, and um, uh, most recently we've been working on, we've had this, this drainage issue over the winter um, where everything, uh, when the snow melts, it's all kind of flooding through our yards. And so we've all been out there digging a French drain and trying to divert the water. And um, I, I just, I learned so much by, spending time with friends and family and, and neighbors and trying to, to work on projects together. Um, so my takeaway is that you don't need a bunker, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's like the bunkers, again, a great excuse to build a community. Um, and there are certain circumstances when the bunker would be useful, but you know, really what it's about is taking stock of your situation, being present, paying attention to what's going on around you, um, that that to me is the is the core of prepping. Yep, uh, this is the most wholesome show. I'm so proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Okay. So that that's so perfect, Chris. Any final thoughts before we sign off? I would just say, don't try to save the world. Save your home. Plant a fruit tree. Start small. Invent mm-hmm. involve your neighbors. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. This was so lovely. And so it's always like we always, (laughs) this, this, this podcast, we always come to the same conclusion, which is just like the the same wholesome message, um, you know, connecting with others, uh, to put it in the sociological terms, the social capital, like the social skills, the community, the friendships, um, is even in some ways more important than the skills, but the skills can help. Help and I, and almost like the the building skills and making things together really helps build that social capital. So, um, but having said that, I still do. I am bunker pilled. Um, I am gonna probably <laughs> get a bunker after watching your TED talk because um, you can use it as a cellar, anyways. Yes. You know. Exactly. And then it's a multifunctional space. It's multifunctional, <laughs> and we've been wanting to put a little cellar, like go get a shipping container and bury it, and. Um, so anyways, but uh, but yeah, th- there's a larger message than just get a bunker or uh, canned goods here. So um, that's that's really helpful and hopeful. Um, OK, thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, yeah, that's it. And, w- and I'll uh, send you an email once it's uh, once it comes out. We've got a couple week backlog, but um, this was lovely. I really appreciate your time. And thanks for making me. Pleasure. Yeah. Wonderful. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Great. Great to meet you, Brad. And we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. We'll be on Twitter. All right. Good to meet you, Ashley. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, Chris. Bye.